Well, we're going to continue where we've been in uh, the Gospel of Luke, and today we're, we're uh, going to uh, finish with the, uh, res- with the uh, story of the crucifixion, but before we read that passage, I'd like to read 1 John chapter 5, an introductory uh, passage, also mentioning the cross in it. So if you would... Turn to 1 John chapter 5, and I'll start reading in verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We have here what uh, appears to be a trial, but uh, the courtroom is not the typical courtroom you're going to. It's really the courtroom that is inside each of us. Each of us has a decision that we need to make, and that decision is regarding the testimony of God. A testimony is a statement given in a legal sense that God is expecting us to believe. And the testimony, again, in verse 11, is that God has given us eternal life. And that life is in His Son. Now, in a court of law, when someone is giving a testimony, you want to have some witnesses that are going to back what the testimony uh, says. And this is the case here. In verse 8, it says that there are three who bear witness. We have three witnesses to this fact, that God has given us eternal life and that this life is in His Son. And the three witnesses are said to be the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, perhaps especially that ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, performing all those miracles that Jesus was doing, pointing to the fact that this was the Son of God. This was the Savior of the world. And uh, the water is the next witness, probably referring to the baptism of the Lord Jesus, which was, again, an opportunity where God the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit descending upon the Lord Jesus, And then uh, John the Baptist himself said, this is the man of whom I have been speaking. That was the next witness. And the third witness we're told in this passage is called the blood. And that refers to the crucifixion. And that's the witness we'll be talking about today. Now, I I note here it says that if we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. And the witness of God is so great that... He he employs all kinds of things in his witness. We'll see it's not going to be simply that God says, and God can. God can simply speak 
and say, this is my son, uh, this, I am giving you eternal life, and this life is in my son. God uses various ways to witness of the fact that he has given us eternal life and that this life is in his son. So we'll look at the passage. In Luke, if you would, turn there. As I said, this is the final account of the cross, so we're really looking at just one portion of one of the witnesses that God has given, that he has given us eternal life. So turn to the book of Luke and chapter 23. <clears throat> it says, now it was, this is verse 44, so Luke 23, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. And so we see the passing of the Son of God. We see him dying in front of us in this passage. But as I said, there's witnesses here to signify what it is that's been going on. <clears throat> We're going to call five witnesses to the stand this morning to testify of what it was that God was doing. The first witness we call is that of creation. Now, Jesus said this. When Jesus walked to, the <clears throat> to Jerusalem, <clears throat> at some point he got on a donkey, and he rode into the city of Jerusalem, and his disciples shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They were proclaiming that here was finally the Messiah that God has sent Israel, and they recognized him. But we're told in Luke 19, 39, that some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So they were crying, Hosanna to the son of David, and the Pharisees said, Rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So here was finally the Messiah that God has promised Israel riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, offering himself to the Jews as God has promised he would. And his disciples and those with him recognize the fact and they're proclaiming, finally the Messiah has come. And the Pharisees say, make them stop, 
saying that. And Jesus said, if I stop, the stones themselves will cry out and speak. Why? Because what was happening was so important for people to recognize that if you could somehow silence the disciples, God would make the stones themselves speak that this is the Messiah coming into Israel <clears throat> or offering himself at Jerusalem. And that's what we have effectively happening in this passage, except it's not the stones that are crying out, but it's creation. It's creation. The Son of God is being crucified, and the crowd that is watching doesn't recognize what is happening. No one is proclaiming what's really happening on the cross. And so nature has to speak. Creation itself is speaking, and it's speaking with this darkness that's covering the land. And it's speaking with an earthquake that was shaking that's not mentioned in this passage, that's mentioned in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Why? Why is there darkness in the land when Jesus is being crucified? Uh, there's a hymn that we sing that expresses it better than I thought I could, so I was just going to quote from the hymn. Uh, we sing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Creation was turning dark because the creator himself was on the cross dying for the sins of men. And it was signifying that. Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when God, the mighty maker, died for his own creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. So creation itself was witnessing of the fact that it was God dying on the cross. What was happening was the most terrible thing that has ever, ever happened uh, as far as creation is concerned. And yet, God was doing something good on the cross. The earthquake that happens, which is not mentioned in this passage, doesn't do any damage to people. It actually opens up graves and prepares the graves, the bodies in that grave to rise. So God was doing something that was terrible as far as the world was concerned, but at the same time, it was being done for the good of man. And creation was witnessing of that fact because men were not aware of it. The second witness we will call forward is the temple. Now, uh, to those of you who may not be familiar with the temple, uh, God has instituted if you would, a religious system or a way for which man needed to approach God. And that way had a temple in it. And all you could do as a common person is when you committed a sin or you wanted to approach God and worship him in some way, you had to bring an animal to the entrance of the temple. At that point, you'd have to give the animal to a priest. And the priest would take it and he would offer it in the courtyard. There was a a large uh, altar in the courtyard upon which your sacrifice would be altered. And if you happen to be a priest, you could actually go further and enter a place called uh, the tabernacle or the holy place. And uh, 
in that holy place, there were some articles, uh, the, uh, the uh, bread on the table, there was a, a lamppost, and there was uh, an altar of incense. I think I, I got them mixed up in location. But that's generally as far as you could enter as the priest. And even that wasn't where God was quite at. There was a veil that still separated even that priest from the Holy of Holies. And into that place, the priest could only enter once per year to actually be in the presence of God. And the Bible says that that signified the fact that the way into having uh, that perfect relationship with God with, which he wanted with us was not yet available. And what we have happening here, that's the second uh, witness, is the fact that the, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. And this is... Uh, this wasn't a, a small curtain. I'm not sure if the picture made it up there. This curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and uh, the breadth of a hand width uh, wide. So if you've, if thick. So if you ever tried to rip a piece of cloth and struggled with it, think how hard it would be to rip a piece of cloth that was this wide. So it is thick. <clears throat> uh, and it was ripped top to bottom, again an indication that this is something that God himself did. Uh, why did God do that? Why did God rip it open? The Bible teaches that there is something that separates us from God. And this is not just something that is uh, shown in the temple. Almost all religious systems out there will have a barrier. They'll say, you have to do so many good works. You have to do this or you have to do that in order to have a right relationship with God. And as you try to do these things, you find that it's impossible. You can't somehow overcome all these barriers that that religious system is laying in front of you. And what Jesus did on the cross by dying for our sins was remove that barrier because it is our sins that prevent us from having a right relationship with God. And by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, he took it out of the way so now we can actually have a right relationship with God. The testimony that God has is that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. What is eternal life? I think often we get the wrong idea that eternal life is to simply live forever, and that's all we want. We don't want to die. We just want to go on and live forever. But that's not what the Bible means by eternal life. Jesus said this in John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son, may, uh, your son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is having a relationship with God. He created you to know him, and when we sin, we became separated from him, and that means we effectively died. Eternal life is being reconnected with God, having the relationship that God wanted to have with us. That is what it means to step into the holy of holies. If you have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, this morning, you are closer to God than the priest could get on the Day of Atonement by entering into the Holy of Holies. You have a relationship with the living, 
holy God. Your sin has been taken out of the way. So now you could really know him. And he can really know you. That is the eternal life that God has given us. Calling witness number three. Witness number three is the words of Christ himself. It says, after Jesus cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is here dying and in his moment of death is showing absolute confidence in God. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Maybe it doesn't seem so special to you. Um, I was thinking of that this week when I was uh, commuting home after work and it seemed like uh, my lane was the one that wasn't moving and all the other lanes were moving. And uh, it's amazing how quickly my confidence in the goodness of God fades when that happens. And here was Jesus in the sovereign hands of God placed upon the cross. And his soul is made an offering for sin for the whole world. He has to endure everything that you and I deserve because of our sins under the sovereign hand of God. And yet Jesus continues to have perfect confidence in his Father and can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was the perfect sacrifice. It says this in uh, Hebrews 9, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, that's what they had to do in the temple, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Because the sacrifice was perfect. You can trust in it. You don't need anything else to make you right before God. Here was the perfect sacrifice, surrendering himself to God to receive all the judgment of God against your sin and then committing himself to the Father. Calling witness number four. Witness number four is the executioner of Christ himself. This is the centurion. It says this about him. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. The very man who was in charge of putting Jesus to death after Jesus died turns and says, Certainly, this was a righteous man. This is the kind of witness you want in court because he has no reason to be saying what he's saying. He is effectively condemning himself. I killed this man. This was a righteous man who should not have been put to death. He's, com he's condemning his commander that told him to crucify Jesus. He is condemning the Roman Empire that signed the paper saying this man must die. So you have to listen to that kind of a witness. Also, he is an expert witness. He has uh, probably crucified other people before. He is a professional executioner. He gets to see people die, possibly days in and days out. He knows how people behave when they're dying. I will share with you uh, a story, maybe a little bit embarrassing, but uh, my daughter came to my wife sometimes this week and said, uh, Mom, how come you're so nice to the guests? but you're not so nice to me. <laughs> and you have to take it with a grain of salt because it is an eight-year-old daughter 
talking to her mother, um, which you know, the mother may be doing exactly what she has to in showing love to the daughter, and yet the daughter may not be appreciating it. But uh, my wife and I had to chuckle at the truth of it. It's true. We put on a nice face to our guests when they come in the door. But we can't fool our families because we're with them 24-7. We tend to wear a mask when we can, but that mask eventually has to come off. And one of the times the, ma the mask will come off is in the most trying circumstances. And I believe this is why this centurion could turn and look at Jesus and say, surely this was a righteous man. Because when you are put to death in the excruciating pain of the cross, the mask falls away. And that centurion has probably seen it happen time after time with people, and yet he watched Jesus all that time, and the mask never came off because there was no mask. Jesus was righteous to the core. Uh, I think perhaps this may be what the centurion saw. Uh, this is a quoting from the from 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When uh, people mistreat us, usually we counter, we return, if you would, a blow for blow. And yet Jesus endured blow after blow, even though he never did anything wrong and never retorted, never said anything negative, never tried to hurt those who were hurting him. In fact, we have only this recorded about those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This was Jesus, and that's why this man could say, surely this was a righteous man. This, by the way, was seconded by everybody else in the crowd. It says that they all, after they saw this, bit, excuse me, bit their breasts and left. Beating their breasts was a sign of contrition. They were the ones who were scorning Jesus on the cross, and now they've concluded that they were wrong. Their uh, mocking of Jesus, saying that he deserved these things that were happening to him, were wrong. He was an innocent man, a man who was put to death for no reason. You'll find the same today. I, I worked with Jews for Jesus for some time, and they give you uh, some preparatory courses before you go and do street evangelism, and they uh, suggest that you start with the question of who do you think Jesus is? And they tell you ahead of time, well, most people will tell you that Jesus was a good man or Jesus was a good teacher, or a good prophet. So the fact is, even people today generally believe that Jesus was a good man. <clears throat> the problem is that most people don't go beyond that. Uh, they don't think of what that means. Uh, how does the fact that Jesus was righteous, uh, a witness of the fact that God has given us eternal life, and this life was in his Son? Well, if Jesus was innocent, that means what he said was true. Well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. He claimed, as we've just uh, read, that he had the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
So if Jesus was innocent, it means all those words were true. This is why Jesus was put to death, for claiming to be God. If he's innocent, it means he is God. And that's, in fact, what the same centurion says in Matthew. He says, surely this is the Son of God. If he is a righteous man, he must also be the Son of God. Jesus said this, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? If he tells the truth, if he has never sinned, if he is an innocent man, why don't you believe him? Believe what he said, that he has authority to give you eternal life and receive it. We will call our final witness, witness number five, is Joseph of Arimathea. We see him uh, in verse uh, 50 and on, going to Pilate, who was the Roman ruler of the land, asking for the body of Jesus, because Jesus was a condemned criminal. You can't just walk away with his body. He belongs to the state. Uh, and then taking the body and burying it in his own tomb. Uh, what kind of a witness is that? Well, I think we have to stop and think about the cost to Joseph for doing that. Joseph, by the way, we're told in the Gospel of John, was a disciple of Jesus. He was a secret disciple. And it says there, because of fear of the Jews. He was afraid of the consequences. What were the consequences? Well, Joseph was a ruler of the land. He was one of the 70 men that comprised the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish ruling committee. Rome was in charge in Israel, but they would allow people some amount of self-rule. And there was this committee, the Sanhedrin, that generally ruled all the affairs of Israel unless Rome had to, uh, to apply one of its own rules. So generally speaking, everybody obeyed these 70 men and the rules they came. Joseph was one of these men. If Joseph, and in fact as Joseph does here, steps forward and identifies himself with Jesus, he can and probably will lose that position because Jesus has been declared an enemy of the state. The Jews have decided he cannot be, the Jewish rulers, the 70 rulers of the council decided Jesus cannot be the Messiah, and whoever claims that Jesus is the Messiah will be put out of the synagogue, which would probably imply losing your position in the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin as well. So Joseph has a lot to lose. It's like a member of Congress today siding with a, a political cause that is unpopular. You will lose your seat. In a, the same way, he will lose his seat. He may lose more. He may lose his, his uh, wealth. He may very well lose his life. Later on, there will be persecution. And that's what he does here. Joseph of Arimathea, by siding himself with Jesus, is putting everything on the line. Why does he do it? I believe he did it for no other reason than not wanting to see Jesus buried in a shallow grave together with the other criminals. Because if he did not intercede, that's what would have happened. He wanted to see Jesus honored in his burial instead of dishonored. And for that sake, he was willing to put everything on the line. It was simple an act of love toward Jesus. Why is that significant? Uh, if I may, I'd read for you, I'd like to read from you an excerpt an account of uh, Napoleon. I think most of you have heard of Napoleon. Napoleon was 
uh, an emperor of uh, France. He was uh, unusual in that, that he outlived his empire. Usually, uh, if you're an emperor, you will die before your empire dies. In the case of Napoleon, he was actually had his empire uh, taken away, divided, restored to its original nations, and he was put in exile in, uh, in an island uh, in the middle of the ocean with the British boats patrolling it. So he actually had the opportunity to be able to think about what happened. And this is the account we have of him. If Napoleon was not a theologian, he was at least a man whom vast experience had taught what kind of forces can really produce a lasting effect upon mankind and under what conditions they may be expected to do so. A time came when the good providence of God had chained down that great but ambitious spirit to the rock of St. Helena, and the conqueror of civilized Europe had leisure to gather up the results of his unparalleled life and to ascertain with an accuracy not often attainable by monarchs or warriors his own true place in history. So there's the background. Napoleon, you know, thinks about history and he's comparing comparing himself with others. When conversing, as was his habit, about the great men of the ancient world and comparing himself to them, he turned, it is said, to count Monothelon with the inquiry, or inquiry, can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? So now it's come to the point, Napoleon will compare himself with Jesus. The question was declined. The other guy didn't want to answer that question. And Napoleon proceeded, well then, I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of ours, of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions will die for him. Here's the difference between Napoleon and all the other emperors of the past, is they ruled by force. They would say, do this or you will suffer the consequence. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandment. Jesus alone ruled by love. He did not want people to obey him out of any other motive than love. He was unique in that. I think I understand something of human nature. This is Napoleon continuing. <clears throat> and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than man. Mark you, this is most likely by an unbeliever speaking here. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, of my words, of my voice. This man had a low opinion of himself. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lighted up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. And some of what he says is true. He was able to inspire his soldiers to go to battle and die for him. But he points out the fact that he had to personally be there. If he walked away, it wasn't going to happen. 
They were not going to sacrifice themselves. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man towards the unseen, and I'd like to say it was towards him, that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, it's 2,000 today, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends, or a father of his children, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally. And forthwith, the demand is granted. Wonderful! In defiance of time and space, the soul of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love towards him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most. I have often thought of it. This, is which, this it is which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. Again, Napoleon, probably an unbeliever, writing this, yet the testimony of the love of believers to Christ in his day and throughout the ages was such a remarkable witness that it led him to conclude Jesus must be God if he demands love and he, he gets it. Now, Napoleon didn't understand where this love comes from. Those who were with us this morning and with us every morning were, know where this love comes from. It's not because we're such loving creatures. It's because he loved us that we love him. If you would, in closing, I'd just like to return to that opening <coughs> passage in 1 John 5, 8 through 12. And we talked in verse 8 about the witnesses. We talked in verse 9 that the witness of God is greater than the witness of man. And in verse 10, it says, He who believes the Son of God has the witness in himself. We've seen how God has been trying to convince people of the fact that he has given us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. And we understand that he's talking about none other than a personal relationship with the Creator of the universe. And what he says here is if you take that step, and believe what he says, you will have that witness in yourself. And those of you who experience that can testify that that is true. When you come to believe in him, he does enter in. He does change your life. He does give you peace. He does give you joy. And he does give you this miraculous love for him. So if you have not yet done so, please consider the witness that God gives of the testimony that he has given us eternal life. 
and that this life is in his son and come to his son and claim that life for yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your testimony telling us that you have given us eternal life and that this life is in his, in his son. Lord, those of us who have stepped forward have indeed tasted that it is true. Uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And we have found, Lord, that it is wonderful uh, to know you. Lord, we would pray here for anyone here who has not yet come forward to taste of that love of Christ and of that eternal life, that you might help them step forward and receive it. We pray that they might do it and even do it today. In Jesus' name, amen.